Haggai chapter 2. There's some of you use your apps, take them out and click through to Haggai chapter 2, or the text is printed for you in the bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. But I'd encourage you, if you have your scriptures, to open to Haggai chapter 2. This is our, our last sermon going through the book of Haggai, our last out of five. Might be a relief for some of you, but for me, every time I go to the book of Haggai, I find encouragement there for me, and I, I find new strength for me there, and I, I hope you have found that to be true for you as well. The book of Haggai, chapter 2, I'm going to be reading for us today verses 20 through 23, the last four verses here in the book of Haggai. This is the word of the Lord, and I, I will ask you, as is our, our custom here, if you're able, would you join me in standing for hearing the reading of God's word? Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, this is your word to your people, given for our benefit, that we might be well prepared for life and for godliness, having everything that is necessary. Father, we ask that you will indeed open the eyes of our hearts as we read your word, that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray, and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I just remind you what we said when we were beginning the book of Haggai. By means of introduction, we said that one of the main focuses in this book is on the word of the Lord. This is a book, it's very brief, two chapters, some 38 verses total for the entire book, and yet 26 times in those 38 verses we hear this phrase, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, or some equivalent, The word of the Lord came. Thus says the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. 26 times in a book of only 38 verses we hear this emphasis that it is the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts, who is speaking to his people. And so I usually think for myself that if God is choosing to emphasize something like this so strongly and so repeatedly, it must be because I need to hear this. I need to stop and reflect on this and to remember that this is something I need. Even our text for this morning, verses 20 through 23, look at how it begins. Verse 20 starts, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time. This is not the word of man. This is not the word of simply Haggai, the prophet. It is the word of the Lord speaking through Haggai. And therefore, because this is the word of the Lord, it comes not only to Zerubbabel, not only to these 6th century Israelites, but it, it comes to us as well. This is the word of the Lord for his people today. Verse 23, the end of our section and the end of the book, ends with it as well. It says, uh, declares the Lord, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It is how Haggai ends with this phrase, and I think we could say that this is the last word of Haggai, both literally here in the text, but also uh, in a thematic sense. This is the last word that he has to say, that it is the word of the Lord speaking to his people. And so as we finish here, we could talk about 
And what is Haggai's strategy? He has a grand task in front of him to uh, encourage Zerubbabel to, to inspire the people. Now to take up their tools, as we've been saying, to pick up their shovels, to, to consider their ways, to get about the work of the Lord in rebuilding the temple of the Lord that has fallen. We could say, okay, what is Haggai's strategy for doing this, for motivating the people, for encouraging them? But I think we would have to say, Haggai does not have a strategy. He has the word of God. He doesn't come to them with his own grand plans. He's not talking about programs or systems and structures. This is what Haggai has. He comes with the living and active and powerful word of God. That which is like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. That which is like a fire that burns. That which is uh, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. Haggai comes with the word of the Lord and trusts that the word of the Lord is like the rain and snow. It comes down from heaven and it does not return their void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. And so it is with the word of God. It comes forth from his mouth and it does not return to him void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. And so this is why every week we we very intentionally open the scriptures together because this is the word of God for the people of God. And we trust that, that this is God's strategy for building his church, for encouraging his people, for edifying the saints, that his strategy is to speak to us through his word. And so we look in the scriptures every week for the word of God to his church. And I remind myself that I'm not here as a motivational speaker to encourage or to inspire by my own wit or by my own cleverness and wisdom. I'm not a, simply a teacher whose goal it is to inform and to impart some new knowledge to you that perhaps you didn't know before, but rather I stand here as a preacher who has the power and authority to say, thus saith the Lord, that this is the word of God for his people today, that this is a word from our God who loves us, who cares for us, who has promised to be with us, never to leave us nor forsake us, who has given his son for us, and he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And he has given us here his word for the benefit of the church. And so, just a brief overview. This is what we, uh, we are going to see in this passage today. There are briefly two points here. And these are both uh, encouragements from the Lord for God's people. And he, he gives two main points. Uh, first, he's going to tell the people who he is. And second, he's going to tell the people who they are. He tells them who he is, that is, who the Lord is on their behalf, and what he is going to do for them. And then second, he tells them who they are, and who he says they are. And so that is where we are going very briefly. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is interesting. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And so we've said as we've gone through Haggai, there's all these dates Haggai is unique in the scriptures for the specificity that it has in giving us dates. We know not only the general time frame that Haggai was ministering and speaking as a prophet, we know the exact day. And there have been four days mentioned over a span of of four months that the book of Haggai has come and the the prophet Haggai was active as a prophet. And here we are, it's, it's December 18th, according to our modern calendars, December 18th, 520 BC. And that's where we were last week as well, the first, or the first, Uh, the last few verses from verse 10 to verse 19 in chapter 2. Same day, December 18th, 520. And now verse 20 says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on that same day. And and I'm just curious, I, I can't help but wonder, why did it come a second time 
that day? Why, I mean, why did not God just not say everything he had to say the first time while he was there? I mean, just, you know, one trip, get it all over with, say everything that he needs to say, or, or spread it out two days, but he comes twice on one day. And I wonder, why did the Lord choose to do things that way? And then the reality, I think, for all of us is, you know, in my life, I often wonder why God chooses to do things the way he does them. You know, not just here, but, but in all aspects of my life, I think, God, why, why have you chosen to do things this way and not another way? I, I had all sorts of my own ideas for your timing, and yet we know this is true, that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect for all of his children. And so if he chooses to come here to Haggai two times in one day, he does that because his timing is perfect. Because in his wisdom, he is doing what is best for his people. And we also see in Haggai this, that, that the word of the Lord does not simply come sort of in general to a, a unspecified people at general times, but it comes very specifically, doesn't it? It comes at very specific times to very specific people in very specific ways. Here, it's coming the second time on this one particular day, December 18th, 522, Zerubbabel, and also to the people at large, through the mouth of Haggai the prophet. There's so much specificity in this text. God does not simply speak in general, uh, sort of in lump sum, give something for everybody, but he, he has the power and he does, in fact, speak very specifically to individual people at just the right times. He does this still through his spirit who ministers to believers, through his spirit who ministers in the church. God speaks specifically. And so I think the question for us then is this. Are we listening? Are, are we listening to what the Lord, through his word and spirit, has to say to us today? Are we anticipating as we come into worship today that, that we will not simply walk away with some general blessing, and some general encouragement and, and good feeling, but are we anticipating that the Lord is going to speak to us specifically, us as individual people, that he has a word for us today? That, that his spirit is going to take the word of God, even though... Though this portion seems like, I mean, it was written 2,500 years ago in a different time, in a different place, and yet still the Spirit speaks through the Word, that He takes this and He applies it to our individual hearts for our individual benefit, for our sanctification, for our growth in godliness. For whatever it is that we are needing today, the Spirit in His, his, his wisdom applies the Word of God for the good and the growth of His people and for His church. And so this is the message then. In verses 21 through 23, this is the message that Haggai brings through the Spirit to Zerubbabel. Uh, this is the conclusion of the book. This is, in a way, this brings the whole thing to a completion. I think it's appropriate conclusion to the book. It's the final word, and I think we could even say this is the greatest word that Haggai brings to the people. This sort of sums up, it's the completion of everything that he said to his people. And here Haggai is addressing himself specifically to Zerubbabel. He says, this is the word of the Lord, verse 21. It says, speak to Zerubbabel. So we note that the first time the word of the Lord came on that day, it was to, to the people. And now the second time it comes, it's a message specifically, in particular, for Zerubbabel, who is the governor. And the message has two parts. It has two parts. The first part is verses 21 and 22, and that part is cosmic in scope. Cosmic in scope, the heavens and the earth, the kingdoms of the world. And the second part is a promise specifically for Zerubbabel. And that's verse 23. Verse 23 is a promise specifically for Zerubbabel. And, and that's actually the foundational promise. 
that will help us understand verses 21 and 22. So I'm gonna, we're going to go backwards through the text today. I've always wanted to do that. It's interesting. We're going to take a text and we're going to preach backwards through it. And that's most useful for us today. So we're going to start with verse 23 and listen to what it says. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I think just on first reading, that verse and a lot of these verses kind of sound like head scratchers. We don't immediately know why that is so encouraging to Zerubbabel, but as we get into it, I think that will become clear. See, what we've been talking about here, to, to remember the grand context, is that Haggai has come to this people. Uh, Israel was sacked by the Babylonians. We remember they, they were taken into captivity. They went into Babylon. That's why Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon, because all of Israel had gone into captivity. They were there 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, Cyrus the Persian made a decree that they could return to Jerusalem. And so they came back. They began to build the temple. They began to lay the foundation of the house of the Lord. And then some opposition arose, and they quit. They just put down their tools because they were discouraged, and there was opposition, and they never got back to it. And so then 15 years went by, and what we've said is they were just building their own lives. They were feathering their own nests, paneling their own houses, and they never returned to the work of the Lord. And so after 15 years, now God has raised up Haggai the prophet to say to them, consider your ways. Is it right for you to be living in paneled houses while the Lord's house is yet in ruin? And so Haggai comes in and he encourages the people and he motivates the people now to take up the task again to, to build the house of the Lord. Uh, but there's a deep, deeper issue here as well. That's the context, the historical context, but there's another issue as well. I, I think it's true that Israel, as a nation, doesn't really know who they are right now. They don't really know who they are right now and they don't really know, more importantly, they don't know how God feels about them at this point. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Think about what has happened. We, remember we said going into exile for them, that was far more than a, a political disaster, which is true. It was more than a personal disaster. That was true as well. But, but re really, at a deepest level, that was a theological disaster. They were taken out of the promised land that God had promised to their forefathers would be theirs. It was the, the Davidic king who was taken off his throne, who, who had received the promise from the Lord that that a son of David would always rule on his throne. So the question is, if, if all these things are taken away, what does God feel about them now? And, and we said that all that happened because of 400 years of disobedience and rebellion and sin against the Lord, that they brought upon themselves the curses of the covenant. And so God came and, and they, they lost the promised land, which had been given to, given to them. But now here they are. Now, now they've actually come back. They're in the promised land again, so that's good, but there's some unsettled questions that remain. What does God feel about them? No prophet had arisen to tell them, what does God think of us now? There was still no king. Zerubbabel was a governor, but they had no king. Uh, the temple was not yet built, so, so regular offerings and the services of worship were not in their fullness, as they ought to be. Uh, so what does the Lord think about them now? Had, they, had it been the Lord who brought them back into the promised land, or was that just because Cyrus had made a decree? What did the Lord think about them? Where was the Lord's hand in all of this? They were suffering, and, and now they were back, but, but that nagging question, I believe, still remains. They still don't know who they are. They still don't know what the Lord says about them. And so there's a sense, I believe, in which they are spiritually paralyzed. They are spiritually paralyzed because if you don't know how God feels about you, 
if you're not believing and trusting all of God's promises of what he says is true about you, then you're not going to have the, the, those inner resources that you need to, to do the Lord's work, to faithfully carry out the calling he's placed upon your life if you don't first know exactly what God says about you. If you don't first believe the promises that what he says is true about you in Christ is true, if, if that is who you are. And so verse 23 comes into that context. And he says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring. This is God's answer to those questions. This is God's answer to Zerubbabel's doubts, if he was doubting what God thought about him and all the people as well, to say Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. And again, although that is, is strange to us, I believe Zerubbabel knew what that meant immediately. Zerubbabel knew immediately what that meant, and here is why. Because Zerubbabel's grandfather had heard the exact opposite promise. Zerubbabel's grandfather was Jeconiah. We saw earlier it says Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the son of Jeconiah. Jeconiah had been one of the last kings to sit on the throne of Israel before the Babylonian captivity. Uh, And yet he was an ungodly man. He was an unrighteous man. And because of his ungodliness and his unrighteousness, the Lord had sent a prophet to Jeconiah. He sent the prophet Jeremiah to him. And Jeremiah came and he said to him in Jeremiah 22, 24, he says this to Jeconiah. He says, although you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off. That's the word of the Lord to Jeconiah. Although you were a signet ring, I would tear you off. And it was shortly after that, that Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian comes and he tears Jeconiah off the throne. And he sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, ransacks it for all its gold, and marches the people into captivity. So what the Lord has done to Jeconiah is to say, you are no longer a signet ring on my hand. All those promises of of David having a son on the throne, that you will be the Lord's people, those are forfeited by your unrighteousness and your ungodliness. Although you were a signet ring, I would tear you off. And, And so that's bad news. That's bad news for Jeconiah, of course, personally, but also corporately for all of Israel to hear this, to hear that the Lord now says to their king, you are no longer mine. My promises to you are no longer in fulfillment. God rejected Jeconiah and therefore rejected all of his people. And so it's easy to understand now how there might be this spiritual pall hanging over the people. What does the Lord think about them now? Is that still his feeling about them? Is he going to reject them from being his people before them? They don't know now if the God of their fathers is still on their side or not. And so, again, it's hard to find the resources to do work for the Lord, to, to do spiritual work, if you don't first know how God feels about you. If you're not first confidently and deeply grounded in the certainty of the Lord's love for you. And I think this is as true for us today as it was for them, that if you are doubting how God feels about you, uh, if you're doubting whether your Heavenly Father cares for you, then, then you're not going to step out in faith. You're not going to live sacrificially. You're not going to give generously and joyfully and sacrificially. You're not going to die to yourself daily and live for others. You just won't do that if you're not first confidently grounded and have those resources because you know of God's love for you. I know, I mean, this is true even in the, even a physical realm, a human realm in in families today. I remember when I was in high school, uh, 
my dream and my goal, really, not dream, it was my goal, was to play first base for the Chicago Cubs. And, you know, I still hold on to that a little bit. I'm starting to give up on that as, as it becomes less likely, but, but there's still that flicker of hope. But that was my goal in high school. That was all I wanted to do with my life was to play first base for the Cubs. And so I was on the high school baseball team, and I really, I confess, I remember very little about those baseball games in high school. I remember that it was snowing during some of our games because I was in Colorado in that time of life. But what I do remember is this, that my dad, without fail, came to every single baseball game I played. And he stood there in the snow watching me play baseball. And I remember, and for whatever reason, I hardly remember the games at all, but I remember that he was there. And I remember that just the confidence and the knowledge of his love that that he took time out of his schedule, busy though he was, to come and to support me. That was so encouraging to me, to give me the strength to play baseball in the face of fading hopes and incoming reality that maybe the Cubs was not in my future. But nevertheless, I had the strength to go do that because my dad was there. That, you know, even if he was the only parent on the sidelines, I knew how he felt about me. And so it is with us in the spiritual realm. First, we must know God's love for us. We must know that he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so God says to Zerubbabel here, verse 23, that he will make him like a signet ring. Although his grandfather grandfather was the ring torn off of God's hand, now Zerubbabel is placed back on his finger. I think this was hugely significant for, for Zerubbabel personally. Think about who Zerubbabel was. We said this. He was the governor of Israel. He was not the king. Even though he was the descendant of David, he was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, he should have been the king of Israel, and yet, because of their political situation, because they were still sort of, sort of free, but sort of under the thumb of the Persians, he could not be a king, he could only be the governor. And so the world would tell him, you're not significant, you're only a governor. But what God says to him here is, you will be like a signet ring on my right hand. Look what he says, he says, uh, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. That in itself was a Davidic title. My servant, the servant of the Lord. He says, this is who you are. This is who Zerubbabel's identity was, that that God calls him his servant. God says he will be the signet ring on my right hand. And this is the truth, that what God says about you will always be more significant than what the world says about you. God here is giving Zerubbabel his title. He's giving him his, his identity, which is far different than what the world would have said that Zerubbabel was. Zerubbabel was just a measly governor of a fledgling little nation. Had just been released from captivity. Didn't even have its own ducks in a row yet. And yet God says, you are my servant. And so this is also what the entire people needed to hear, isn't it? This is for all the nation of Israel to know that they are God's people and that he is for them. This to them says, this is who you are as a people. He, He doesn't have to say it to everybody. He simply has to say, the king is mine. And they would all know, okay, if our king is belonging to the Lord, if he is now the Davidic heir who's back on that throne that God has promised, God is on our side. He is for us. He is our people. And this is, I believe, what, what one pastor has called the irony of gospel sanctification. This is the irony of gospel sanctification. He says it this way, that, that those who would make the most progress in spiritual growth and in sanctification are those who will be most confidently assured of their standing in God's sight. That they are the ones who are most confident of God's love for them, most 
assured that nothing they do will ever forfeit God's love for them. It's those people who will make the most progress in their spiritual growth. It says, whereas those who are doubting their position in Christ, those who are not confidently assured of how God feels about them, they actually make the least progress. He says that's irony because we might think, okay, if we keep the people on the edge of their seat and never let them be totally sure of how God feels about them, then they'll work really hard because they'll want to try to earn it. But he says the reality is just the opposite. Those who doubt, those who do not have assurance, they actually don't have the resources to do God's work in God's way. It's those who are firmly assured. They're the ones who make the most progress. Those are the ones who grow the most in holiness. And remember what the, the issue was here in God's covenant with David. And we won't turn to 2 Samuel 7, but let me just remind you, because that is where God originally made his covenant with David. You remember, this is what's interesting. David saw in his time the exact same issue that Haggai points out in his day. Remember what David says. He goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, is it appropriate that I, the king, am living in paneled houses while the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent? Remember, it's the exact same situation, although in David's time, David takes the initiative to point this out, and he says, Lord, let me build you a house. He says it's not appropriate for the people to be living in nicer accommodations than the, the ark of the Lord. And what does God say? He says, no. He says, no, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. The Lord takes the initiative to say, no, it's, it's not for you to build my house. I'm going to build your house first. And he doesn't mean a new castle to live in. He means he will build a people. He will build a dynasty. He will build a legacy. He will build his church for David. David will not serve him first. Christianity is the only religion in the world where, where our God says to us, you will not serve me first, but I will serve you first. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is Jesus who says to his people, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As much as the people come and they say, Lord, let us work for you. And he says, no, I will work first. I will accomplish for you what you could never accomplish on your own. And only then will it be appropriate for, for us to work in response as David's son, Solomon, would of course go and build the temple. David saw what the people of Haggai's day did not see. The Lord had to send a prophet to show it to him. So the first point here is that God is faithful to his promise to build David a house. He's faithful to his promise. Here in Haggai, those promises seemed as though they were in doubt. And he says, Zerubbabel will be a signet ring on my finger. And the second point here in the text is that God is faithful to his promise that a son of David would always sit on the throne and he will show them who his people are as well. Let me read verses 21 and 22 and then explain why these, although a little difficult, are a very timely word of encouragement for us. Verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, Let's remember what this means. We talked a few weeks ago when we were in, in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We had a very similar passage about all the, the wealth of the nations coming in and the Lord shaking the nations. And remember what we said. We said it's probably best if we don't take those passages too literally, as though when it says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, he doesn't mean an actual earthquake. But what he means is that God, on this coming day, is going to act 
in an unprecedented way for his glory and for the sake of his people. He is going to bring a salvation such as has never been seen before. And what we saw in the earlier verses in 6 and 7 was that the result then of God's saving action was that the temple would be built and would be expanded and would be enriched and all the wealth of the nations would come into it. And here we have these similar verses. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, overthrowing the throne of kingdoms and destroying the strength of kingdoms. And the result here is going to be the exaltation of God's king. That all the other nations out there are going to be put down and Israel and their king will be lifted up above all the other nations because they are the nation of God. They are his people. And although they are fledgling and struggling and small at this point, he says, this is what I'm going to do. A day is coming when I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to act on your behalf in a way that I've never done before and it will be greater than anything else so that my people will be lifted up. My people will be exalted. So it's easy to understand why the people, these particular people at this particular time, needed to hear this particular word. Because they were small. They were struggling. You know, they'd just been in captivity for 70 years and now they've been back and they're trying to rebuild and they haven't done much to speak of yet. They're still a small, struggling, fledgling nation. There's still this spiritual pall that is hanging over them. They still have no spirit, no no uh, political power, no political clout. They can't even have their own king. They just have a governor. And yet this is what the Lord says. He comes and says, I have not forgotten my promise to David. The day is coming when I'm going to fulfill those promises beyond all expectations. And I'm going to come and I'm going to act on your behalf. Is this not still the message that we need to hear today, 2,500 years after this was written, halfway around the world, and yet this is his message for us today? So I think it's easy. I think it's easy for us, even today, to get discouraged. To look maybe at the state of the church and to be discouraged, whether the state of our, our individual church or the state of the church in the world, the church universal, and to say, uh, it just doesn't seem like God's promises are headed towards fulfillment. It's easy to be discouraged when we see the power of the big pagan nations or the power of the big secular corporations. And to say, what hope does God's people have against this? We seem to do so little in the way of actual transformation of the culture. We seem to have so little impact. And when we look at pop culture, we still don't see, we don't see Christian values. We don't see the Lord lifted up. We see, see human values. And it's easy to get discouraged and just to think, where is the Lord in all of this? What is he doing? When will we finally see that day when the Lord will have mercy on his people? And yet he says to, to the people, this is his promise that this day is coming. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I am about to overthrow the thrones and the strengths of kingdoms of nations and overthrow all the chariots and their riders. And on that day, he's going to exalt his king. A day is coming when Jesus will ride in in all of his glory. He will overthrow the thrones and the powers that are arrayed against him and against his people, coming in on that white horse with the sword of the word of his mouth coming forth. The Bible says he'll have it written on his leg, King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, he will, his king will be exalted and he will overthrow all of his enemies. Haggai answers all of the questions, all of the despair, all of the discouragements, all of the apathy that the people are feeling simply in this way by preaching the authority and the power and the sovereignty of God. 
pointing them again to what God is going to do on that great day when he will be all in all. Hebrews 2. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to Hebrews 2 real quick. Hebrews 2.8 tells us very, something very important here. He does something very similar. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. says this. Hebrews 2.8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Look at what it says. It says, He has put everything in subjection to Jesus. That means right now, currently, as Jesus is in heaven, seated on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, he is ruling over all things currently, present day. Everything is in subjection to him. But then look at what it says. Not to state the obvious here, but he says it. At present, we don't see that. We don't see everything in subjection to Christ. That point hardly needs to be, to be proven. We don't see the world subjection, in subjection to our great king, Christ. It says we don't see that. It is a reality, it is true, but we don't see it. But this is what we see. We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Theologians call this the already and the not yet. In other words, Jesus is already seated on his throne. Everything is already in subjection to him. But it's not yet that we see this in all its fullness. We do not yet see that this has been worked out in every corner, in every sphere of life. We, we don't see it. There's still suffering. There's still death. There's still unbelief. We don't see it, but this is what we see we see Jesus, glorified, reigning in heaven, ruling as a prophet, priest, and a king, defending his people. His rule has not yet spread to every corner of the earth, and this is why we still pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that every week, because we see Jesus, and by faith we understand that that he who did not spare his own son, his own son, our call to worship this morning, that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A day is coming when we will say yes and amen to everything in that prayer, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the word of God to the people of God today for our hope, for our encouragement, for our edification. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to take your word, we want to believe it at face value, we want to hear your promises, we want to agree heartily, and we say, yes, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, fulfill your promises, Lord, we long for that day when you will be all in all, 
when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We long for that day when every rival power will be put down and the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, will be exalted over every other authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we we ask, encourage our hearts with these words. May your spirit apply them directly, specifically and individually to our hearts. For it's in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his glory that we pray. Amen.